to everybody. Uh, if we haven't met before, my name is Stephanie and I'm an articling student at Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. We want to thank you all for joining us today for Family Law Now Live's presentation on special support. The content of this webinar is to provide you with general, general information and not to be considered as legal advice. And for those of you in the legal community, uh, this program has been accredited by the Law Society of Ontario and it can contains one hour of professionalism content. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our host for today, Susanna Krishlow, Margie Pomero-Pimentel, and Bill Rogers from Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. Susanna is an associate lawyer who is fully trained in collaborative practice. She has over seven years of family law experience and works hard to achieve favorable outcomes for her clients in their family law cases. Susanna approaches client consultations with compassionate but analytical mindsets, and uh, she aims to provide her clients with the very best representation possible. She's also passionate about supporting local and international charities and humanitarian aid organizations, including World Vision International, ERDO, and the Salvation Army. Uh, Margie has been practicing family law since 2007. She is also a collaboratively trained practitioner and an accredited mediator who is passionate about facilitating fair and reasonable settlements for her clients. She also serves as a dispute resolution officer for the Superior Court of Justice in Newmarket and Toronto. Margie approaches law in a holistic manner uh, and believes that as a family law lawyer, she has a unique opportunity to provide emotionally intelligent advice to clients that will assist them in moving forward with their lives in a better to be in a better position with the best interests of her clients and the children at mind. And last but certainly not least, we have Bill Rogers. Uh, Bill is a managing associate lawyer at our firm. His courtroom experience includes numerous motions, several full-blown trials, and he also had the privilege of winning a major family law victory at the Ontario Court of Appeal in 2014. That's, uh, that's triggering me. <laughs> it's uh, bringing back some old memories, some, some PTSD. Things got ugly. <laughs> so when Bill is not practicing law, he does love spending time playing music with his band, Soul Custody. And if you've uh, tuned in before, we already know the issues with the term there. Um, but it was it was named before the Divorce Act changes. I'm going to write a letter. <laughs> so now that I you know. should rename it custody again. That <laughs> was such a band. cool word. <laughs> so now that you know a little bit more about our team and what we have on the agenda for today, I'm going to pass things over to Bill to get us started with the presentation. Thank you, Steph. I uh, really appreciate it. Um, I'm so uh, glad that we have Margie and Susanna here um, to help out with this. Very uh, excellent lawyers, both. Um, and I think we're going to start with poll one. And this is um, to see who's out there. Law professional, other professional, all that stuff. The, before, when we're waiting for that, um, I just uh, wanted to... Uh, uh, talk about the uh, the spousal supported advisory guidelines. Some people might have heard uh, Roly Thompson um, discuss these. He uh, he created them along with uh, Professor Carol Rogerson. And uh, if you ever get a chance to hear Roly uh, talk about the guidelines, it's it's uh, super interesting, super informative. And there's a, if you Google. Um, uh, SAG uh, user guide, you'll see um, um, there's really great resources there too. So if you ever get that chance. Do we get the poll in yet? Uh, oh, there we go. Okay, law professional. That's what I was afraid of. We got to keep this accurate now. 
otherwise they'll know. Um, okay, so so the first, there's actually, uh, we're going to jump right to another poll because this is actually an interesting question and I've got some comments. Um, so if, if there's a difference in income, is the lesser earning party automatically entitled to spousal support, yes or no? Um, <clears throat> and I'm just going to wait two seconds to... Uh, before I tell the answer to that, I think a lot of people will know. Why are you smiling at me, Margie? Did I say something dumb already? Margie's a DRO, by no. the way. That is way cool. Not really. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, okay, so do we have the, yeah, there you go. That is, yeah, uh, most people got that right. Um, no, and if you look at, um, if you Google spousal support advisory guidelines, the revised user guide, which I just mentioned, that's what Rolly Thompson and Kale Rogerson put together, you'll see um, what they say. And they say, no, uh, the guidelines only deal with the amount and duration after there has been a finding of entitlement. Um, it's wrong to just run the numbers, okay? Um, and that, that's something that it took me a while to, uh, when I first started practice, uh, um, I just thought, well, if there's an income disparity, you run the numbers, do it. And most of the time it, it is, most of the time, it, there, but just a need-based entitlement, but you actually do have to investigate that. You can't just automatically assume. So that's, uh, that's something to keep in mind. And on that topic of entitlement, I'm going to pass it over to uh, to Susanna. And Susanna, give us a little uh, overview of what the types of entitlement are. Thanks, Bill. Um, hello, everyone. It's nice that you guys have joined us today for this presentation. Um, before we talk about the different types of entitlement, we need to turn to the legislation to see what is the purpose of a spousal support award. Um, we look at the Family Law Act and we look at the Divorce Act and essentially under the Divorce Act, the court needs to look at the conditions and the means and needs and other circumstances surrounding the relationship. So spousal support can be a very complicated issue. It, it requires an analysis of what happened during the party's relationship? Did you, what kind of functions did you perform during the relationship or did you not perform? Is there an agreement relating to your support after the relationship um, ends? The court also wants to recognize any economic disadvantages you, you suffered or economic advantages um, the other person suffered or, or that they were the recipient of, sorry. Um, we look at, did you have childcare responsibilities? Or are you gonna have more childcare responsibilities after the relationship ends? And the law also wants to promote economic sufficiency, right? Self-sufficiency. We don't necessarily want people to be dependent on spousal support forever. Um, the law also looks at relieving any economic hardship that a relationship has caused to one person. Um, when we consider all of those factors, we look at the different types of support. So we know that 
entitlement must first be established before we look at the guidelines and figure out duration or amount or where you fall within the guidelines. That, that's the key legal analysis that needs to be performed. And once you've gone through that analysis, then you can figure out where do I fall in terms of entitlement? Is this a contractual basis because I have some kind of an order or agreement that provides for my support? Um, do I proceed under the claim of, well, maybe I'm entitled to compensation or is this a non-compensatory claim? So when we look at compensatory claims, the law attempts to look at your economic loss or disadvantage that you've suffered and the economic advantage that the other person has received. So is it because, you know, you're a secondary earner or there are children involved and very young children at that or maybe older children who also have needs? We look at um, do you have children who maybe are disabled and that might hamper your efforts to become self-sufficient because you may not be able to work as long right because they require special care we look at did you have to move to support your spouse's um, career did you give up your own career did you work in a family basis a uh, family business we also look at non compensatory claims. So that would be where there is a great need. And Bill touched on this earlier when he talked about income disparity. And that happens a lot at the end of a relationship, right? Because during the relationship, you merge your income and you cover all of your expenses. But when the relationship ends, all of a sudden you have somebody who is a really high earner or not necessarily as high but there's a huge disparity in incomes. And it's unfortunate, but it's also true that a lot of times the women are the lower income earners. And so they need a little bit of um, support to help maintain a standard of living post the relationship. So the law will also look at what your standard of living was like during the relationship, right? Is one person going to be able to continue that high lifestyle and the other person is going to be on or at the poverty line? So we try to balance that out a little bit and provide economic stability under the need category. Um, we want to look at your budget and what your new living accommodations may mean in terms of the income that you have available to you. We wanna look at the other person's budget and what they have available. So when you're proceeding under this category, we also wanna look at the length of your relationship um, because that helps us figure out where you fall under the range. So it's very important when you're making a claim for spousal support that you critically examine the relationship and each factor in the relationship. So you can figure out where you fall. Maybe you fall under one category, maybe you fall under two. Where you fall can affect the amount of support you're gonna receive and for how long. So, you know, make sure whether you're a lawyer or you're 
a client going to a lawyer, you critically examine all of the facts so you can best assist your client in terms of where, where should I claim entitlement? Thanks, uh, Suzanne. And I just wanted to ask you if you've ever run into um, what I run into sometimes, which is trying to explain to my client why they have to pay spousal. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I sometimes say, Susanna, tell me if you agree with me on this. If you say to them, look, especially if there's kids, you say, do you really want the other parent to live in a trailer? Because that does not look good. That's not good for the kids. You don't want a super unequal standard of living. Uh, certainly not at first. Have you ever run into talking to clients about that kind of stuff. That's what I tell them. Yeah, I, I usually tell clients, I go further and say that the reason why the government created this legal obligation to begin with is that they don't want a spouse at the end of, the, of a marriage or a relationship to have to rely on the public purse, right? Yeah. Um, right. They want yeah. to have spouses yeah. take care of that sort of obligation. And, and, and I think the key thing here and you know, with entitlement, which is one of my pet peeves is uh, like you, like you mentioned earlier, Bill. You know, lawyers just, you know, prepare uh, SAGS calculations, and oh look, there's an income disparity, without really trying to, you know, provide a basis for entitlement. And yeah. in some cases, you have to like it, there is, in my opinion, you know, entitlement is a is a very weak claim uh, that the other person might have. You really have to look at why is there an income disparity. You know, and it, does that relate to the uh, compensatory, non-compensatory basis for entitlement? Yeah. So it's really important yeah. to really get over that threshold issue first before you go into the numbers. Yeah, and a big income disparity can also be uh, an indicator that there is a compensatory claim, which would explain why that person is making so much less. And usually it's childcare. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the compensatory case is MOG, M-O-G-E, and I think the phrase is... Uh, Sacrifices made for domestic considerations. Usually it's childcare, you give up your career. So um, that was an excellent rundown, Susanna. And uh, you know, I always say to my client, look, you gotta pay, you may as well look at it this way. The money's gonna help the kids. It'll trickle down and you're gonna be the hero instead of the guy who's not paying. You don't wanna be that guy. Um, I say that to my clients, they have to pay anyway. Try to look on the bright side. Um, thank you for, for, for that. Um, Margie, mm -hmm. um, you've been tasked with explaining the definition of spouse um, in the Family Law Act and the Divorce Act. Over yeah, to you. So, yeah, so in general, entitlement to spouse support uh, is not limited to married people. Um, you know, it's uh, both unmarried common law spouses and married people can, can uh, make a claim for spouse support. However, uh, only married spouses may apply for spouse support under the Divorce Act, whereas both married or common law spouses may apply for spouse support under the Family Law Act. Um, and when, uh, you know, you might have this situation yourselves in the past, uh, Bill or Susanna, where, where uh, you know, your client asks, or they think they're in a common law relationship, and they go by the, the you know, uh, maybe tax law definition of spouse where you to be you know, living together for a year. Um, but under the Family Law Act, a spouse, a common law spouse is one uh, individual who, uh, individuals who are not married 
to each other and have cohabited continuously for a period, period of um, not less than three years or in a relationship of some permanence if they have a child together. I never understood what some permanence is. I know. It's a little bit of permanence. It's not full permanence. I don't even know what that is. <laughs> yeah, where, where is- where I know is there's that? case law. Yes. Yeah. yeah, you'll have to look at the case law on that. But uh, yeah. I imagine if, if there are there's a child, that is an indication of permanence. And some permanence. I like the idea of zero <laughs> permanence. <laughs> well, um, the, well, the last thing I want to point out about the definition of spouse is that under the former Divorce Act, uh, the, the, the uh, spouse was defined as either two persons who are married to each other. But with the changes of the Divorce Act that came into effect uh, March 1st, 2021, it includes an extension of the meaning of spouse to include former spouse, because I guess the legislatures thought, you know, we all know what spouse means under Divorce Act, people who are married. So that's it. Thanks, Margie. That's uh, um, helpful in information. It shows how things have changed so much over the last few decades. Um, can we bring up the next, uh, here we go. This is a, sort of a trick question. Um, if someone is permanently disabled and will never work again, can their spousal support be terminated? Yes or no? Now, it's kind of a trick question. Maybe it's not a trick. I don't know. Is it a trick? I don't know. Um, anyway, um, I'm about to deliver myself of um, some remarks on this topic, but I think I should wait a tiny little bit. I wonder if, if you're a payer of spousal support, does it make you feel better if you're paying under the Family Law Act rather than the Divorce Act? Oh, I feel so much better now. It's the same amount. Um, I'm going to try that one next. Okay. Um, do we have, yeah, oh, hello. Okay, so we've got a, um, competing uh, answers. It is a bit of a trick question. I, I think the answer is yes, you can. And the reason I say that is because I went back to the um, original case that established uh, need-based entitlement, which is called Bracklow, B-R-A-C-K-L-O-W. You can't miss it. It's the Supreme Court of Canada. 1999. And it's interesting that um, Ms. Bracklow, if you read the decision, um, she uh, continues, I'm quoting here, continues to suffer from bipolar mood disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder, and fibromyalgia, and is unlikely to ever work again. That's from the Supreme Court. It was sent back to trial, and the trial judge gave her five years, and then it stops. So to me, that says even someone who's disabled and will never work again, it's you can cut them off after a period of time. In this case, it was five years. So um, is that, can I is say that accurate? About that, though? You're a DRO, is that accurate? Well, I think it's interesting to note that in Brockloud, the, the recipient, the, the parties were married, lived together for four years prior to marriage and married for three years, so there was a total cohabitation period of seven years. There so you go. So it was that, a shorter, yeah. Yeah. So if they'd been together longer, it probably would have been different. But I think the principle is you still can cut them off. Yes, that's that's why we have as lawyers have to make that sort of analysis, right? And really, exactly. really dig into the facts. Yeah. Yeah. Now, um, 
that brings us to our next topic, which is kind of related. It's it's um this the idea of of needs and means, or the need and the ability to pay, and these are factors that are um, live issues in these these cases. Um, uh, Susanna, do you have any uh, inspiration on this? Thanks, Bill. I think you know just following up from Brocklow, one thing that the court looked at is whether the need arose from the marriage breakdown, right? Or was it something extraneous that um, the POR had no control over? So there are many cases where someone would have a need for spousal support, maybe because of disparity in incomes and lower standards of living, or maybe because of childcare or some other issue. But we also have to look at a peer's ability to pay. So when you run a SAG, if you know all the numbers end up at zero, there is a mistaken assumption that that means there is no entitlement, but actually it doesn't. All it means is there is an inability at the present moment to pay. And there are cases where um, you know, the pair might have child support obligations. And we know that child support comes first. So um, they may not have sufficient funds left over to pay spousal support. But then in the future, things change, right? The, the child support obligation ends. And this is where getting into the facts, like Margie said, and the analysis to support your claim for spousal support is actually pretty relevant, because then you can come back later on and ask for spousal support because things have changed and there might be still a need. It's also very important when you're drafting court orders that you try to define under what uh, ground that you're entitled to support because that also impacts things later on when you come back to court or if you come back to court and maybe you're seeking a review or variation. There are many, many orders out there with spousal support claims and you can't look behind an order. You can only look at what an order says, but we don't know on what ground the person was entitled to support. So we just have to make sure that, you know, those, those little things we, we pay attention to um, down the road. Um, when we look at ability to pay, we should also look at income, right? All sources of income. With my clients and, and opposing parties, I usually say, I don't just want to see your notice of assessment. I want to see your income tax return because that's going to show me a little bit of a breakdown as to where this income it came from. And we also look at the last three years so we can kind of trace incomes, especially where we have a payor or an intended payor who's maybe trying to hide funds or maybe does want you to live in a trailer with the kids. Um, it depends entirely, it depends entirely on the quality of the trailer. It's possible to have a really nice trailer, but mostly it's not good. Not good for, for the recipient and the children. It's not good for the kids. It's just bad. Agreed. Yeah. yeah. Unless it's a really nice trip. Uh, it still might be bad, right? But I mean, who wants to 
always live in the trailer. Yeah. Well, that's a super important point. Thank you, Suzanne. I mean, especially that idea. And I think Rolly Thompson talks about this. Um, just because the SAGs say there's nothing payable because of the incomes, it doesn't mean there's no entitlement. There might be. And like you said, um, child support has priority. If child support eventually ends, that could free up money for spousal down the yeah. line, especially if there's a compensatory claim. And um, you, you do see a lot of these, what they call a crossover cases where when the kids grow up, then um, spousal support increases and the child support goes down. And that, that happens uh, quite often. So right, but but it's it's also important when you look at defining the entitlement, right? It's also important when you look at, well, what if my spouse repartners or remarries? Can I reduce my support obligations? Well, then we need to consider, well, on what ground was the recipient entitled? Because if there's a compensatory claim, you may not be able to, right? But That's right. It's like a compensatory claim is almost like a debt that you have to pay regardless yeah. of how much money the other the recipient has, correct? Yeah, but if it was maybe based on need, then maybe the recipient's right. need isn't as great as it used to be, right? Which That's is right. why yeah. the analysis is very important. Yeah. But if you move in with Jeff Bezos, it would be super cool of you to say, look, I don't need the spousal anymore. I'm I'm calling you from outer space right now. You know what I mean? Not until you have an agreement in writing with Mr. Bezos and yes, everybody ILA, right? Yeah, good point. Um, now, oh, okay, the next topic. Thank you, Susanna. That was okay. most enlightening. Really appreciate it. And I can, you know, you can see what a great lawyer Susanna is. She knows her stuff and Margie too. Um, <clears throat> Margie, these sags. Would you care to hold forth on that topic? What are they? This is, there's a lot to cover. Yeah. Um, okay, so we're done. Let's forget it. <laughs> um, okay. Well, we have a money back guarantee on these webinars, right? Yeah. Yeah, well, as I was mentioning, uh, <laughs> any uh, the Law Society has said that any presentation I'm involved with, whoever's watching it has to subtract a professionalism hour from their total. <laughs> right, Susanna? No comments, Bill. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say no comment. <laughs> only one? Thanks for your support. Okay, Margie, over to you. What? Uh, yeah, okay. talk a bit about the SAGs. So the SAGs stand for the Spousal Support Advisory Guidelines. So I just want to highlight that they're advisory guidelines. Uh, although in Ontario, uh, you know, lawyers and judges will all, you know, uh, base their their you know positions and, and orders on what the SAGs calculations provide. Um, so they're advisory in a sense that there are ranges and you can go. You know, within the range or outside of the range, um, and there's flexibility in that regard. Um, but it, it, they're, they're advisory guidelines, and, and they suggest appropriate ranges of support in a variety of uh, situations for spouses entitled to support. So again, we don't go into the SAGS calculations until we have, um, uh, you know, entitlement is, uh, you know, proven or accepted. So once that's done, then we look at, well, what are the numbers? What, what sort of 
uh, ranges are we looking at? And one of the things that uh, determines whether you know, uh, there is even spouse support payable, and this goes to uh, need, are what we call uh, floors and ceilings. Um, so the ceiling and the floor define the upper and lower boundaries of the typical cases where formulas can be used. Above the ceiling and below the floor, the, uh, the formulas alone cannot be used. Uh, individual adjustments are required at that point. For the floor, if a payer has an annual gross income below $20,000, spouse support is not generally uh, payable. Um, there may be exceptional cases below $20,000 uh, where support is sometimes payable. Um, for a payor whose income is between twenty dollars to $30,000, there may be spouse support payable at the low range or below the low range if there's a strong claim to entitlement and uh, you know, there's a strong need of the recipient. Um, for example, the cases that involve, you know, long marriages, uh, older and retired spouses, uh, you know, spouses with disabilities, uh, both spouses uh, having disabilities are examples of scenarios where some spouse support uh, is payable where the payer earns between 20,000 to 30,000. So the issues are, uh, of the floor really go to the payer's ability to pay, okay? So ceilings, um, are you know if in a situation where a payor has an annual gross income above three hundred fifty thousand dollars, there is a presumption that the amounts uh, that are produced by the SAGS formula are are appropriate or that the spouse uh, formula should be automatically applied. Um, there is no presumption. I'm sorry. There is no presumption that they should be uh, up, you know they're appropriate or automatically applied. And you have to look at you know various factors to determine what the support should be. Um, you, you know, as counsel, you should look at the facts of each case to see where, you know, how much support sh should be payable. In general, if a payor's income is close to or not that far above $350,000, uh, the amount of spouse support would likely fall in the low to mid-range. Um, it will fall within the formulas, uh, what the formulas provide. And generally, if the payor's income is far above this, uh, the $350,000 ceiling, uh, the amount of support ordered will usually fall below the end of the SAG range, but at times it can fall within the range. You know, but again, you'll have to look at, you know, where the, the specific facts of your case, um, you know, if there are children, there's child support payable, uh, the ages of the of the parties and and you know and that that's a good segue into the factors that are taken into account wh whether or not there's a you know a ceiling or not. So when we're talking about the SAGs, where what you know the numbers that are produced depend on on a number of factors. So the age, uh, age is a significant factor as it it may affect the ability to become self-supporting. If the recipient is younger, there's a general presumption that the recipient has the ability to, for example, to retrain and to achieve self-sufficiency. Um, if the recipient is older, there's a rule of 65, which Bill will discuss in greater detail later on. But based on the rule of 65, uh, when a relationship has lasted five years or longer, and the years of the marriage plus the age of the recipient at the time of the separation equals or exceeds 65, then the, the SAGs provide for indefinite support. 
Another factor is, in, uh, factor is income. Um, if both the, the payor and recipient's incomes, both of the, the payor and recipient's incomes are relevant to the calculation of the amount of support. And the starting point for the de determination of income under the spouse support advisory guidelines is the definition of income under the federal child support guidelines. So under the federal child support guidelines, the total income figure on line 150 includes income from all sources, uh, which includes employment income, uh, pension income, interest and dividend income, business or professional income, and uh, employment insurance. However, for the purposes of calculating uh, spouse support, it's important to note that social assistance is not income, and social assistance includes uh, Ontario Works or ODSP. And I don't know if we should get into the concept of imputation of income. I know we're going to be talking about incomes later on, but it should be noted that you know a, a lot of us family lawyers have clients who are self-employed or clients who claim that they earn a certain number, you know, same certain income and have no real reason for not being to earn more, uh, you know, a payor or recipient may be found to be intentionally underemployed. Um, and in that case might be imputed or attributed with an income. And so, you know, the courts may go beyond what the, the payor or recipient claims as their income and their income tax returns. The other factor that uh, takes is that is taken into account is, you know, children. Um, child support impacts the amount of, of spouse support, and I often tell my clients, you know, to view the party's net disposable household income as a pie, and the first piece goes to the children to cover table child support and Section Seven expenses, and then anything left over will be used to pay spouse support if there is an entitlement to spouse support. And um, as you alluded to earlier, you and Susanna Bill, you know, if there is, if child support takes up the bulk of the pie and there is entitlement, especially if there's a compensatory uh, entitlement, it might be that, you know, the, the entitlement continues and when the children are no longer entitled to child support, spouse support will then kick in. But child support will always take priority before spouse support. Yeah. And sorry, you're going to say something, Bill? No, I just, yeah, I'm just agreeing um, with the crossover cases that they sometimes get called. It, child support stops, spousal support kicks in. It happens. Right. And that's why we have to be careful not to, you know, have our clients waive their release their right to spouse support in those sorts of cases, just because uh, the spouse support calculations show zero to, to very little spouse support, right? Um, so the last factor is length of the relationship. The longer the relationship or cohabitation, the longer duration of spouse support and the stronger the recipient's claim might be for support. So for marriages of long duration, which is you know over 20 years, defined as over 20 years, in time and spouse support will usually be found if there is a disparity in the party's incomes. The last thing I wanted to say, I mean, if there's any other factors you guys want, think we should add about the SAGs, but the last thing I'm gonna mention is union dues. Can you, can you talk about conduct? Oh yes, I could talk about conduct, but I just, on, on union Adultery, dues, if you commit adultery, you yeah. still get spousal support. 
Yeah. Whereas yeah, in the sixties, in the 1960s, yeah, you didn't. It all became no fault in the late sixties. It came from California. Prior to that, adultery mattered. People still think it does though. People yeah. will say, well, she cheated on me. Mm -hmm. I don't have to pay her. And I'm like, it's not 1965 they, anymore, my friend. They send you, they bring you a binder full of evidence that their spouse was <laughs> cheating on them too. Yeah. But, but you and I were talking about this uh, in preparation for this webinar bill that, that there's section 33 sub 10 of the Family Law Act. Yes. It's really can, interesting. Can I, can I talk about that? The, yeah, absolutely. Margie and I were talking about this and Margie being the genius DRO that she is brought up the fact that uh, <clears throat> yes, there is no penalty. The Divorce Act actually says the court shall not take into consideration any misconduct of a spouse when it comes to spousal support, misconduct being adultery primarily. Um, however, and this is what Margie pointed out, and thank you for this, um, section 33 sub 10 of the Family Law Act, I'm sure everyone watching knows this, but I just have to talk about this really quickly. Quote, the obligation to provide support for a spouse exists without regard to the conduct, but this is the this is the amazing part. The court may, in determining the amount of support, have regard to a course of conduct that is so unconscionable as to constitute an obvious and gross repudiation of the relationship. Thanks for pointing that out. And of course, I did a case law search. I only found one case. Mm -hmm. It's called Bruni. <laughs> Bruni and Bruni, 2010. Um, and it said this is a rare situation, but I just have to tell you what mom did in order to have her spousal support reduced to $1 a month. Quote, her parental alienation was evil, shocking conduct, which amounts to a hideous repudiation of the relationship. Um, and to give you an example, what she did, she, uh, she told the kids that if they phoned their father or talked to him, the kids would go to jail. Mm. So that's what you have to do nowadays to get your support cut off. Yeah. And I only found the one case. Uh, I don't know if there's other case law, but uh, thanks for that, Jim. Well, there is a case where uh, they found, you know, someone brought forward this, the husband brought forward this claim that spouse support should be reduced because the wife was, you know, had multiple affairs in her little town, even had an affair with his brother, had his brother's child. And even in that situation, the court did not find it. It was a, it met the test of repudiation of relationship because the test is a very high threshold. The yeah. conduct must be exceptionally bad. Um, cause reasonably expected, could reasonably expected to destroy the relationship. And the other spouse has to be innocent or virtually blameless, right? And if you're, if you're a lawyer who has this claim and you're like your spouse, your, your client wants you to pr provide this, um, to, you know, move forward with this claim, you have to be aware that you really, really, really have to be extremely confident in your position and that you can prove it, that you have the evidence to prove um, that you're, that the other party, you know, acted in this manner because there are cost consequences, cost consequences of the party who brings forward this claim if the court leader determines that it's a frivolous issue. So, Mar so Margie, she had a kid with the guy's brother? 
And she had multiple affairs. Yeah. And he still had to pay spousal support. It, it did not affect the the amount of spousal support. So it's, it's I think that's that's uh, careful. Yeah, the section 33 doesn't say entitlement, right? It says determining the amount. Yes, yes. So, well, in Bruni, yeah. they put it down to $1 a month. But if you can have a kid with uh, the guy's brother and multiple affairs and still get support. It's a high threshold. It's a yeah. high test. So it's a neat. Well, it's, no, it's all part of a no-fault system. They don't want to be litigating that kind of stuff because the court would come to a standstill. That's exactly. part of it, right? But, but yeah. Bill... If you look at Rolly's commentary in the SAGs, you know, he also critiques a lot of the case law. And he says, look, if you were before a different judge, I think they may have viewed these facts differently. So yeah, a lot of it, you know, to us, like, I agree with you. I think that's a repudiation of that relationship, but that judge didn't think so. Yeah, I think that's right. Um <clears throat> Anyway, yeah, uh, I'm not, it's, I'm not going to judge. That's why I'm not a judge, because I would be too judgmental if I was a judge. <laughs> um, okay, thank you for that awesome rundown. Um, where are we? Oh. Union dues, Bill. What? Union dues. Let's, can we not talk about union dues? Margie, do you want to talk about union dues? Sorry, my, my microphone was off. I was going to say, if you could touch upon that when we get down to the issue, like when we talk about income. Okay. Because I want to talk about NDI. Okay. Net disposable income. The only thing I want to say about it is it's not always equalized. Um, okay. As Roly Thompson says in his thing on uh, the uh, user guide that you can find, NDI is a reality check that looks at the income positions after the spousal support's been figured out. Um, there are some cases, some scenarios where it tends to be equalized, and uh, Roly talks about this, where, where neither spouse has repartnered and there are no new children, they tend to try to equalize NDI. Uh, another scenario uh, where the shared residency, which is you know 40% or more uh, residency of the kid, um, they often tend to um, equalize the NDI. But um, as Roly says, sometimes they don't equalize it. And that happens often where there's big income disparity, which is, as we said earlier, an indicator that there might be a compensatory claim because, you know, why is one person making so little? And in a case like that, um, very often they, they do not equalize the NDI. They'll give someone 60% or more. So that brings us into, uh, actually, we've already answered poll four, but we may as well put it up. Everyone's going to know the answer. Social assistance treated as income? Always, sometimes, never. And I think we mentioned it, so everyone's going to know the answer. Um, wait a second. And ODSP is part of it. Um, in Alberta, they call it assured income for the severely handicapped. Um, they, you know, they call it different things in different places. Uh, let's see what the poll results. Okay, so we've got some different ideas here. According to Roly Thompson, and again, I can't recommend it enough, just Google uh, SAG uh, revised user guide, you'll see it. Never, 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 never social assistance is not income, even though, according to Roly, 
A lot of courts have decided that it is, but he says they're wrong. And if you receive social assistance, it should not be counted as income. And I guess that would be typically the recipient, right? Um, so yeah, that's that. Next topic, incomes and financial statements. Margie and or Susanna, I can talk about it too. Who wants <laughs> to dive start. into this? I, I always start. think of a financial statement as the great opportunity to commit perjury because it's a sworn statement. People don't understand that. It's an oath. And if you lie, which lots of people do, God knows, you're actually committing perjury. Now, perjury you can go to jail for, but I've never seen anyone be put in jail for lying on a financial statement, but it is perjury. So I always tell the client, you know what? You got to tell the truth. And if you don't, you will pay the consequences because they will discover you're lying at some point. Um, but uh, is there, are there, besides that, are there any other comments that should be made on financial statements when it comes to, to this? Yeah. yeah go ahead. So sorry. sorry, Margie, do you want to go? No, go ahead. No, oh, thanks, Margie. Um, with respect to PRs, you know, I find that a lot of times they inflate their expenses, right? Because they want to show this is my income and these are my expenses. So FYI, I cannot pay support. But I found that judges really scrutinize financial statements because like you said, Bill, you know, it's, it's an offense, right? To, to lie on a sworn document. Um, there have been cases too where judges in the past have looked at each entry for your expense and they can reduce some of the expenses that you, you have on there. So they may think that it's too high. You know, it isn't really reflective. I saw a case back in 2004 where a recipient on one, in one case and a PR in another had a cell phone expense and the judge said, that's a luxury. You don't need that. I mean, today you wouldn't find a judge who would do that. But this is how you know, detail the analysis can become, right? So you have to make sure, especially for the recipient, that you properly state what your expenses are. Um, they've even been known to take away expenses like contributions as gifts or charities or even alcohol. They've, things like that have been eliminated. Five, uh, um, five, 5,000 a month for alcohol and tobacco. Well, sometimes you give a client a financial statement and it comes back at you. And as a lawyer, you yourself have to critique it because if you don't, a judge will, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people, they may underestimate expenses or they may overinflate it. So you have to be careful because when you look at the income and you look at the financial statements, you have to explain, well, how do you pay for all of this, right? Um, if a judge thinks that you're not being truthful on a financial statement and, you know, they can't really assess your income, for example, um, because you haven't really provided proper disclosure for a court to be able to assess what your income is, then the court can make an adverse inference against you for failure 
to provide proper financial disclosure, right? So they can also um, impute income to you. They look at whether or not you are distorting your income, for example, or whether, you know, there are cases where a peer might want to artificially reduce his income after separation to avoid a spousal support obligation. So again, as a lawyer, make sure you properly assess your client's income and give the court a true picture of what that is really like. Yeah, and I've got a client who, uh, it's a male client, he's a little rough around the edges, let's say. Okay, he's a lot rough around the edges. Zero dollars a month for quote, hair and beauty. Um, the judge said, uh, sir, I think you should increase that. It was the only time a court has ever ordered someone to increase their beauty budget. <laughs> it's a reported case. Actually, I'm kidding. It didn't happen. Thank you, Susanna. Let's go to the next poll. I'm learning a lot here from you, Susanna. Thank you. Poll number five. In calculating spousal support, we use the length of marriage, the length of cohabitation, two different things, or the midpoint between the two? I think everyone, that's a trick question or something. I don't know. Anyway, while we're waiting for that, I'm going to, uh... Margie, do you want to talk about union dues while we wait for the result? Oh, yes, yes. Um, so when you're when you're calculating income, as, as uh, Susanna was saying, and, and you know, uh, you really have to provide really good, clear evidence about your client's income. And that goes with whether you're a payer or recipient. You wanna ensure that you properly put in the right income, like source of income. Yeah. And that you, you, you deduct those, uh, you know, union dues, for example, can be deducted. And there's other adjustments to income that could be made. Um, you know, those adjustments that are available under section three, Schedule right. three, I'm sorry, schedule three of the family of the, the uh, child support guidelines. So you because you really want to show, um, you know, the cash flow that's available to the parties. And that I'm talking about both payor and the recipient. And um, you might if you don't, your client, if you're the payor might end up being paying more than they should be paying, or if they're the recipient, uh, be receiving less than they should be receiving. So, right. So it's all about getting that accurate picture of the money available. Exactly. Right. Okay, what do we have for the poll results? Okay, so we've got some different opinions here. Um, basically, the answer to that is it's the length of cohabitation, period. And very often that's longer than the length of marriage. So you always start with when do they move in together? That's the starting point, and that factors into duration, usually, of, yes. of, of, uh, of spousals. So that's... Uh, that's something, it's it's right on the divorce mate um, uh, form. Rule of 65, this is the last thing I'm gonna talk about, and then we're gonna start answering some questions that have been coming in. The rule of 65, um, as Margie said earlier, if you take the length of the relationship, not just marriage, cohabitation, and you add it to the age of the recipient on the date of separation, if it adds up to 65 or more, then the duration of spousal support is what they call indefinite. A couple of points to make. Indefinite doesn't mean forever. It just means there's no termination date 
specified in the court order that's going to happen. But you can still cut it off. Um, and the other interesting thing is um, the rule of 65 is like the uh, the SAGs generally. The SAGs are uh, guidelines, but there's a case called Fisher, um, 2008 Court of Appeal, Fisher versus Fisher, where it says you don't have to use the SAGs, but if you don't, you have to explain why. Same with rule of 65. You don't have to follow it, but if you don't, you have to explain why. So there you go. Um, hi, Steph. Are we ready to do some questions? We are. So I'm going to just do some rapid fire here because I do want to be mindful of the time. So one question that came in uh, for child support purposes is social assistance income. Nope. It's not income for any purpose except to spend when you get it. <laughs> Thanks, Bill. All right, next question. If I'm on social assistance, do I have to pay support? Margie, you mentioned that if, if it's, I don't think so, but. Well, it depends, right? We're getting into the issue of imputation of income, right? But you if can be imputed, social, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you're on social assistance and you you can be, you know, depending on the facts of your case, because if you're, if, you're, if you're unable to work because of a disability, for example, then the argument becomes, why aren't you on, on ODSP, for example? Why don't, are you not in receipt of disability? Uh, if you're on social assistance, you can work. And so you might be imputed with an income, at least a minimum wage income. Good so point. the answer to that is yes, in practice, yeah. you will likely have to pay some support if you're the Thanks. payor. Yeah. Thanks, Thanks all right, uh, we have time for one more quick one. Uh, does indefinite support mean I have to pay support until I die? Um, maybe, but it doesn't mean that, like, I'm, like I, I said a minute ago, all indefinite means is that there's no termination date. Doesn't mean there won't be a termination date. And, you know, it's not easy to terminate. It's better to have a termination date. But if you don't, it doesn't mean you have to pay till you die. Yeah, thanks. Bill. It'll be reviewed. It'll be reviewed. Yeah. It'll be reviewed yeah. upon material changes in circumstances, um, such as retirement and loss of employment, etc. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. I know that was a lot of content. Thank you, everyone who um, has stayed tuned. In.